Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. David Farland began writing during college and entered short stories into various contests, but his career began in 1987 when he won the top award in the Writers of the Future contest. He published several science fiction and fantasy novels, including On My Way to Paradise, Star Wars, The Courtship of Princess Leia, and several best-selling fantasy series, including one of my personal favorites, The Rune Lords, and Of Mice and Magic. He has been nominated for the Nebula Award and the Hugo Award. He became a contest judge in 1991 and served as an instructor at the annual Writers' Workshop for several years. David Farland is currently the coordinating judge and editor for the Writers of the Future contest. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I'm very much looking forward to this particular episode of the Writers of the Future podcast because we're going to talk about specifically uh, writing instructors and what works and what doesn't work. But before we get into that, um, your history with Writers of the Future, because you're the grand prize winner all the way back in volume three. So I'm just um, curious how you how you found about the contest and your, basically your curve to actually winning it. Yeah. Well, I, I joined a little writing group uh, at Brigham Young University when I was there. And uh, it was all science fiction and fantasy writers. And I probably had been going for a month or so when one of the authors, M. Shane Bell, uh, said, hey, I've heard about this really cool new writing contest. Uh, volume one of Writers of the Future had just come out. And so uh, we all sat around and looked at it and decided we ought to enter. And uh, uh, so we, we entered stories. M. Shane Bell ended up winning a first place. I ended up winning, I think, uh, a finalist the first time that I entered. Uh, and then I decided I'd better get serious if I was going to, <laughs> to beat Shane. And uh, so I, I uh, entered my next story was uh, On My Way to Paradise. And that's the one that won the grand prize. And within about two weeks of winning the grand prize, I ended up getting my first three-book contract from Bantam Books. Which is great. That was really, really great. So what makes, for you, what makes Writers of the Future such an important aspect to the future of science fiction and fantasy? Well, there's a, there's a lot of things going on with Writers of the Future that, that make it different. For one thing, you know, one of the goals of the contest has always been to offer enough prize money to help make a difference in a writer's life. And so uh, when I won my grand prize, of course, first thing I did was go out and buy a new computer so that I could write on it. And, uh, and I also continued my writing education by buying books. And uh, I stayed in college, of course. Uh, I was a, a senior uh, in college at the time. And so you know, there were a lot of benefits, but then there's also the publication that you get, the recognition that you get from publishers and from editors and literary agents. All of that factors into what makes this such a valuable contest because, you know, you can win a small regional contest and it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. But if you, um, if you win something big like this, uh, everybody finds out about it. Yeah. Plus, this contest has now grown so much that it's got entries from over 175 countries. And it's, you know, we have winners every year from all over the world, which is just really, really great. And you, know, you get to see all the entries, and it's considerably more than it was in, uh, in 1985 when uh, the first call went out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, uh, the contest was created by Owen Hubbard shortly following his having released Battlefield Earth. So how familiar were you with him at the time, or how familiar did you become with him as a result of the contest? You know, I wasn't real familiar with with L. Ron Hubbard at the time. Um, I, I remember that my uh, my parents had some had a Dianetics book, I was, as I recall, growing up, and so I was familiar with the name. But uh, he hadn't been writing science fiction and, and whatnot for a few years, and I was 
I was paying a lot of attention to who was winning awards at the time. I was looking at the Hugos and the Nebulas and and stuff like that. And I was working back uh, historically, reading a lot of novels back into the 1950s and, and that kind of thing. But um, but I wasn't super familiar with them at the time. Got it. And so then once you found out about the contest and his the fact that he had been a, one of the most popular writers of Pulp Fiction, anything about that, that once you started reading him, that impressed you about his writing? Well, you know, one of the things that I looked at was um, just how – how do I say this? How businesslike he was. You know, he knew how to how to how to grab an audience. Uh, it was obvious that he was crafting stories. His talk about um, how do you build a story and build it quickly and get it to publication. You know, that was the kind of advice that came from somebody who was doing it every day, not from a literary professor who'd never actually written a story. And and that just made an awful lot of sense. Uh, I think that. Coming in it from academia, you tend to have a, a little bit of a, a jaundiced view of, of what publishing is really like. And so, you know, to see that, gosh, not only can you make a living as an author, but you can make a really good living. You know, you can become internationally famous and that kind of thing. That was, that was one of the first lessons that I think I took from that. I get it. And in the workshop... And also on the online writing workshop, which you are one of the three uh, instructors that teaches, there's about 10 of his essays that are used in the winner's workshop that we use also in in this. What about his essays? You mentioned the one a little bit about the business of writing, but any particular essays that for you really uh, made a difference in your own craft? You know, um, I, I think all of them did, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest, you know, because I, I read them, I studied them. Um, and then, of course, in teaching the workshop in later years, I got to reread them and think about them. And, and it's funny because the I think the first year that I took the, took the workshop, uh, I'm not sure that a lot of it stuck. I think there was an awful lot of of stress and tension and, you know, gosh, am I going to win the award? And you're, you know, you're paying attention to a lot of other things. But as I got down and started focusing on it, I, I just kind of found that each one of them was a gem. There was more information in there than I remembered. So uh, there was, it was just packed full of it. Which is great. Yeah. And what we're even doing this year is all the winners before they come out, we're asking them to do the free online writing workshop that you, Tim, oh, great. and um, Scott Card uh, created so they can get a bit of a, a leg up so you can get a little more detail into what you talked about in those videos and what Ellen Hubbard talked about in those essays and take it even deeper than um, what they normally are able to get in that one-week crash course that they come out for. Love it. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. So on the... Um, the fact of a writing instructor, which is one thing that you're quite well known for. So um, basically give me a, a run through like, what do you do? What should somebody be looking for? What should they stay clear of in um, writing instructors? Well, you know, I, I've been teaching now for about 30 years um, and, uh, and I teach in a lot of different ways. Uh, I taught creative writing at Brigham Young University. And, uh, and some of my students went on, did quite well from there. Uh, I was a writing instructor for Brandon Sanderson, who's uh, huge right now, mm -hmm. uh, and for Stephanie Meyer, who did Twilight, and for Dan Wells and a number of other authors, uh, all who've gone on to become extremely successful. And, uh, and then I've also worked with a lot of people in uh, you know, private little writing workshops, so I'm always teaching writing workshops. Um, I actually have a little bit of a, a problem with catching a lot of illnesses pretty easily. I've got a, an immune system that doesn't work really well, so I don't like going into public places a lot. And so right. uh, teaching online helps me a lot. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I go to conventions, I very often will teach at conventions. And so there's a lot of different ways a teacher can instruct, I guess, uh, when you're teaching writing nowadays that uh, maybe weren't open to us uh, 20, 30 years ago. But I think that there's, there's just so many different ways that you can approach it. I, I think that, you know, if I were to 
to start looking at what a writing teacher is and, and what do you want from a writing teacher, one of the first things that I look at is I would look at the writers, writing teacher's background. There are a lot of writing teachers who are coming from academia, and maybe they're really good at deconstructing a story, but you know, it's sort of like deconstructing a frog. You can deconstruct a frog with a scalpel, but when you're done, you don't have a frog anymore. <laughs> you know, you've got some dead meat on the on the table. And and when you're trying to create a story, it's like you're coming at it different. You're you're exercising different mental muscles and, and things like that. And so I really think that uh, a writer, uh, a writing instructor ought to be somebody who writes. And ideally, I would be looking for somebody who writes really well. For example, um, some writing instructors uh, are, are, you know, Nobel Prize winners, and yet they could be terrible writing teachers. Uh, for example, Ernest Hemingway used to um, kind of make fun of his authors. If they would ask a question that he considered to be stupid, he'd give them stupid answers, you know, and he'd mislead them. Uh, so, for example, somebody once asked him, you know, do you, what kind of chair do you write in? And uh, he said, I don't write at a chair, I stand. And a lot of writers began standing when they wrote, thinking that maybe that would pump more blood to their brain. And the fact is, is that he did write in a chair, okay? He just didn't want to admit it, and he couldn't have told you what kind it was anyway. Um, but but he would do things like that. He once told a, an audience that, gosh, you should, um, you should revise everything that you write at least 60 times. And then someone asked him, how often, how long should we wait between revisions so that we can look at it with a cold eye? And he said, two years. So, <laughs> folks, if you want to use his techniques, 120 years from now, you can submit your first short story. Obviously, he didn't do that. Um, he, was, he was a pretty bad writing teacher, but he was a fantastic writer and a Nobel Prize winner. And other times I've seen writing teachers who um, maybe aren't great writing teachers, but they're great teachers. Okay, and they can teach just about anything, and so uh, so I would look for a writing teacher who actually writes. Uh, first of all, I would look for someone who is uh, who is an accomplished teacher who can communicate. I I think of it as being sort of like um, uh, a radio tower that's sending out radio signals and. You, as the teacher, are trying to send out clear signals to the authors who are trying to learn the topic. And they're the little radar dishes out there, you know, tuning in as best they can, yeah. trying to get clear data. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out how to get that to you as well as I can um, so that you can act upon it. That's all it comes down to. So I look at it from the point of view of, okay, I want to, I want to be a good clear writing teacher. Beyond that, uh, there are so many things that go into it. You know, I think being positive and upbeat with authors. I've seen authors that um, their first their first stories didn't look like much. In fact, I remember uh, looking at one author years ago and thinking, oh, this, this poor guy's never going to get anywhere. He's now the best-selling writer in the science fiction field, okay? <laughs> um, so sometimes your first efforts don't really show uh, how well you can do in the long run. Um, I, uh, you know, as I've mentioned, I've taught Stephanie Meyer and Brandon Sanderson and and people like that, and their their efforts uh, weren't always stellar in the beginning. You know, you didn't, you couldn't look at them. I remember Stephanie Meyer looking at her story and thinking, this girl has a fantastic ability to create different voices for stories. And I thought, you know, if she ever gets really serious about one, she's going to be dangerous. You know, uh, she could go a long way. And sure enough, with Twilight, she was able to capture the voice of a character so well that it just sucked in, you know, over 250 million sales at this point. So, you know, there's an awful lot that goes in here, recognizing that not everybody has the same strengths. You know, one author can be really great at plotting a story. Another one can have a gift for creating 
uh, in-depth characters. A third one might be a fantastic stylist. Most writing teachers, if they see someone who's a stylist, they think he's a great writer. Uh, that's not necessarily true. You can be a you can be a great stylist and create really boring stories, um, and that happens all the time. So I'm I'm always looking for authors that have strengths, and then find out what those strengths are, and say, okay, now what what are we going to add to that? What new strengths can we develop for you? And right. and that's the way that we want to take it. I get it. So. Now, when you're working with someone, do you do better when you're working one-on-one or is it better when you've got a whole group that you can work with and then they're just um, everybody's moving forward and then feeding off of each other's responses too? I think that uh, uh, I, I think there's, there's different learning styles and I think that in different situations, uh, each method can be the best. I, I, I've been in a lot of classes where I've seen people feeding off of one another, mirroring one another's successes. And I think that's really great. But there are those times where um, an author just needs the one-on-one. And, uh, and part of it, I think, is that an awful lot of people need to know that a teacher cares enough about them to give them the one-on-one, you know, that, that it, it sort of validates all of the hard work that they're putting into it. Right. I remember when I went to BYU and I was a guest speaker at Brandon Sanderson's class teaching mm-hmm. creative writing, which was, I guess he followed you teaching that, yeah. mm-hmm. that class. And I mean, it was a pretty full class. He had like a hundred, 150 students there. And they were all very interested in the writers of the future because he had acknowledged the fact that he had been a finalist and what it had done for him. But that's a very specific environment they're teaching at a university class. Do you find it's it's best, like if you're able to teach somebody, like right now we're in the world of of Zoom uh, workshops and stuff, but then did it go easier when you actually had a in-person class? You're going to be going to that that workshop in – in Las Vegas in a couple of months. What is that? The 2020? 20 books to 50 K. Yeah. 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 I, I think, I feel like um, there's advantages to both, you know, when you're, when you're in a group, it, it does feel more intimate. Um, it gives people a chance to, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm taking lunch. We can, we can talk at lunch or something like that one-on-one. And I really like that. On the other hand, uh, with my, with my zoom classes, I'll teach a class and I'll have someone in India and another person in New Zealand and another person in uh, China. And so I could reach people all over the world. And, uh, and so I, I tend to really like that format. Uh, that works, that works pretty well for me in getting a large group. And I'm, I'm kind of like Brandon when I, when I taught my last class, I was going to open it up for 30 people and, and, uh, we had 170 before I could even get the darn thing closed. Um, so I ended up having to teach three classes. I wanted to break it down into smaller into smaller groups. But um, but yeah, the point is is that uh, you know it it makes it a lot easier for students because they don't have to take time away from work. They don't have to uh, drive hundreds of miles. They don't have to spend money on hotels and and things like that. So I'm really liking. Uh, and this format. In fact, I, I asked some of my students recently, I, I said, I want to start a new writing class. I was going to put up a, a class for, um, for my epic novel writing workshop. And I said, you know, I'm going to do one. I'm trying to decide if I should do it in Salt Lake or Las Vegas or, you know, where I should do this next one. And every single person said, do it online. You know, I, I don't want to have to travel that far. And so people have gotten really used to this new format and it's taking over, I think. And they can still get, I guess, a lot of individualized attention as well. Do you do breakout sessions to get with people individually or how does that work? What I do is I, I do question and answer sessions with them. And uh-huh. I take I take a little extra time. I'll teach the class, and and then I'll stay for an extra twenty minutes or so to answer individual questions. But um, but they a lot of people just send me questions via email, 
Um, and, and then, of course, when they turn in their assignments, I can look at their assignments and give them comments and that kind of thing. So they're getting really the same kind of individual attention that you would get in, in a class. You know, with, with Stephanie Meyer, she, she came and asked one day after school, okay, how do I write the best-selling young adult novel of all time? And so I said, okay, let's go to my office. And we just sat down for the next hour and a half and plotted out what became Twilight. Um, but uh, uh, that was a process where you go, okay, this is not something that we could normally handle in class. And so yeah. for that, I have, I have the option where students can, um, you know, they can say, I want a private consultation. And, uh, and so they don't even have to be a student in a class. Anybody can do that. But I do private consultations, and I did I did two of those today, um, helping people with various novels and and trying to figure out okay how am I how am I going to take this from idea to print, and and go from there. Wow, so that brings up a point. Now, some of these how to questions. Um, one thing that you mentioned because you said various things that you go over when you do your uh, teaching is. Um, I have not really addressed this particularly in this podcast before, but how do you analyze an audience? So mm-hmm. there's all kinds of audiences out there. And the idea of like, I'm going to write something that's going to just bowl over everybody. It, that ain't going to happen. You know, so what's, what's the actual technology of how to analyze an audience and what is being just ridiculous thinking you're going to get this versus what's realistic to, to shoot for? Well, um, you know, audiences, uh, audiences read stories because there are positive emotions that they're looking for in their lives. And, and those positive emotions are pretty well uh, documented. In Hollywood, I worked as what's called a green lighting analyst. I would look at screenplays and I would, um, I would look at the screenplay and see what emotions the screenplay aroused. And then I would look at who the intended audience was, how old the uh, stars were going to be playing in each role, that kind of thing. And then we could figure out a formula that allowed us to compare it to uh, similar movies so that we could figure out exactly how many people were going to come to that movie in the first two opening weeks. Once we knew that information, we could figure out how much it was going to cost to make the movie and then decide whether or not to give the movie the green light, whether we should go ahead and make it. And, um, and so it's a mathematical formula. <laughs> and uh, most people are scared of mathematical formulas. It's not particularly hard to do. But, uh, but, but that's what I did in, in Hollywood. And, um, and, and the same mathematical formula works here in books. You know, New York doesn't hire uh, a, uh, an analyst like me to go out and look at books, but maybe they should. You know, I mean, <laughs> I was asked to help choose a book to push big back in 1998 for Scholastic, and, and I chose Harry Potter. And we pushed it big, and uh, they asked, "How do how do we go ahead and promote this book so that it goes big?" And we turned it into the best-selling novel of all time. Um, and and so you know that book uh, it cost millions of dollars to promote, but it made billions of dollars in return. And um, and so we can look at books and make some pretty good educated guesses about how they're going to do. But the the emotions that um, are important to arouse are number one wonder uh, this is for young adult readers and for children in particular uh, next we have humor uh, that's for everybody everybody loves humor to a certain degree so um, it has a, a very high audience rating horror is big um, there needs to be some horror element in every movie I don't care if it's a sweet romance, you still have to have the horror of what it would be like to live alone without love. Um, it has to be raised as a specter for the readership. Um, but then we get into things like adventure, um, fighting action scenes, people going off into the unknown. The, that's a huge beat. Uh, then we have romance, 
which is what Stephanie Meyer and I worked with on on Twilight. You know, I said if you want to write the best selling young adult novel of all time, it's going to combine romance with wonder, and uh, and then we throw in enough adventure so that you could get a some male audience to it too. Um, but in any case, we we've got that as a huge one, particularly for older women once they once they hit their mid teens on up. Okay. Uh, until their 40s, and then it starts dying down a bit when when a woman gets into her 40s. Then the next ones that we have are drama, mystery. Uh, both of those are are huge emotional beats. So those are the those are the eight emotional beats. And if you notice, when I talk about those, those aren't just emotional beats in movies, but they're also genres for books. Okay, wonder is science fiction and fantasy, uh, humor, horror. Those are just straight romance, um, mystery, all of those elements. Each of them is a, a particular genre of books. So they're pretty easy to quantify. There are some emotions that are positive emotions that uh, we don't measure. Uh, for example, nostalgia. Uh, if you see a movie that really arouses a strong sense of nostalgia, you may absolutely love it. But in Hollywood, we didn't. We didn't sit down and analyze such movies and say, aha, this will capture the 90-year-old audience really well. Uh, well on you know. Golden Pond did pretty good. Yes, on Golden Pond. But but I think that's a that's a a, a rare example. You know, there's there's yeah. only a few of them. You can take something like uh, the Christmas story about the little kid who wants to buy the the Red Rider BB gun. You know, yeah. uh, that was pure nostalgia, very funny. Um had a great audience response, but but we don't get many movies like that. For sure. All right, so so that's obviously important. So at what point does a person, I guess this, I'm asking, I'm developing the question as I'm talking to you now because you've got, I'm gonna write a story, I wanna write a story about red BB guns and uh, a Palomino. And so you got this whole thing figured out, but then, Say, okay, now what's the audience working backwards from that to get the audience? What's the correct sequence to actually put together a story? Do you work out the audience first? Do you work out a story idea? What, what's, how do you build, like, you starting off and, like, I'm going to write a book? Okay. If I were going to write a book and I wanted to start out, I'd look at the audience first. Is there an audience for this? How big is the audience? Can I make it bigger by doing certain things? You know, um, you're. Uh, you're looking at the idea of, okay, I want to create a bestseller. A bestseller usually a- appeals to a wide audience, male, female, old, and young. They're called the four pillars in Hollywood. And when you are trying to appeal to that wide audience, you very often have to appeal to different emotions. You have to have a sense of wonder, and you've got to have some adventure, and there's got to be some humor and horror. And so it ends up being a bunch of different genres wrapped up together. And you'll get a movie like Star Wars that had all of that and had some drama too. And, or, or you can get uh, you know, The Mummy or something along that line. Those are movies that uh, make great date movies. Uh, they appeal to anybody from the age of you know, eight years old to, to 60 or something like that. And so I look at uh, basically uh, how how wide of an audience appeal will this movie have, and and uh, or this book, and then judge from there. I get it. Yeah, when I was talk- I interviewed um, S. N. Sterling uh, a couple months ago, and he said when he, his first novel came out, and it was it was bought. Um, it was I think science fiction. The editor said, okay. Make it romance. He said, what? It's science fiction. Yeah, I know, but romance has an audience 10 times the size of science fiction at that time. So he turned to romance and did quite well. So sometimes, too, the audience was a, a determining factor of what was finally accepted by the publisher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, uh, I mean, think about it this way. When you write a book, if you write a book and you aim it right at say, 5 million people. That's the most sales that you're going to get. Um, you can, though, go ahead and aim it and, and you know, do a, a, a scattergun approach and try to aim it at a, at a wider audience. 
and uh, and say instead of going for five million, I'm going to go for fifty million, and you're going to get a wider audience. One of the reasons why I I recommended Harry Potter was that gosh, it had a a great appeal to young children, but. One of the first things that I did was when I got the book and I was looking at it and some other books is I gave it to my wife and said, okay, how's it going to appeal to an older woman? My wife loved it. Pretty soon she was fighting with my 10-year-old daughter to see who could read it next. And uh, and then I read it and saw that it appealed to both older men and would appeal to young boys. And I just said, okay, this one, this one works really well for a, a wide audience. And there's a lot of different kinds of stories wrapped in there. You know, Hagrid uh, is raising dragons secretly in his room and falls in love with a giantess. And, you know, so you've got mystery, you've got, um, you've got romance, you've got all sorts of things that are being added together uh, to create a tapestry that that basically every reader will enjoy. And that's why it was worth promoting as a big book. Sure. Now, do you think, is that what J.K. Rowling was planning on? Or was she just, this was a story based on her nighttime talking, telling a story to her kids that she then put into story format and wrote a book off of it? I think, uh, personally, uh, that J.K. Rowling is what I would say is kind of she's a natural genius at audience analysis, okay? I don't know how much of it she consciously was aware of, but I think subconsciously she knew what she was doing, okay? Sure. Uh, and and you, can, you can find people who are like that, you know, who are great at shooting baskets from the 60-foot range or something like that. Uh, yeah. and, and you can ask them, you know, how do you do that? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I suspect it's probably a bit of that. And uh, I also think she's probably a, a good student of writing uh, and whatnot. She, she took her time to... Uh, to imagineer her stories, you know, well in advance. Yeah. Yeah. I obviously, I mean, I definitely enjoyed them a lot. And as uh, Scott Card said too, he thought they were brilliant because it, it totally turned a bunch of young people into readers, which mm-hmm. then became readers for his books too. Absolutely. Absolutely. People that love to read books aren't particular. I, got, I can only read this author. They're going to read, want to read other books that they like. So then on uh, staying back on this uh, analyzing an audience then, so if you've got a person out who, who wants to make it as a writer, so, okay, I'm, I've got an idea. They've done maybe the online writing workshop that we've got with Writers of the Future, so they've mm-hmm. got their first sto- short story based upon those steps there. At what point does it become important that a person starts looking at analyzing an audience as compared to being able to even just write a story successfully in the first place? Well, that's a good question because I, I don't know that there's any one uh, way that you have to learn. Uh, I, I like the idea of analyzing the audience first, then writing the story. Okay. Uh, and by that, I mean plotting, uh, actually plotting the story. So in my courses, I teach, uh, I teach audience analysis and then we go into plotting and then we go into actually composing the story scene by scene, uh, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, uh, so that we try to basically work from the big ideas down to the execution of the very smallest, you know, dots and t- uh, <laughs> slashes on our T's and, and that yeah. kind of thing. So, so I'm, I'm very interested in uh, lo- teaching writers how to build worlds okay how do you build uh, how do you develop characters so that we have uh, good dynamics between uh, our heroes and our villains and our our uh, guide characters and our minions and you know these different types of, of characters and then how do we build a plot out of that um, you know there's so much that goes into developing societies for example and customs and belief systems and then when you start putting into the form of story, how do you transport an audience? How do you capture their imagination? And so there's a whole science behind that um, where we talk about appealing to the proper senses in the proper order so that, so that the readers uh, are basically 
carried away in their imagination. They, they actually sort of become hypnotized, you know, uh, because they're exercising parts of their brain that you may not be exercising in your daily work routine. And, uh, and we end up going into um, what's, uh, what's referred to as the alpha state, which is a, a state of consciousness where you are uh, kind of daydreaming, I guess is about the easy way to put it. But you're transported into the story and you're being told uh, this is what you're going to see and hear and smell and those kinds of things. And it comes alive for you. And that's when a, that's when a reader you know, can suddenly sort of find themselves turning into a character and taking this this inner journey that uh, feels as if they've lived through it. You know, anybody mm-hmm. who's read Lord of the Rings uh, may come back feeling as if they have traveled across Middle Earth and uh, and you know they they've walked across the plains of Mordor and thrown the ring into the crack of doom and had Gollum bite their finger off and all of those kinds of things. Um, we we basically on a on a symbolic level end up taking that journey with the protagonist, and that's why stories can be so profoundly effective in mm-hmm. teaching people and changing behavior and that kind of thing. Now, when you were when you won Rise of the Future thirty four years ago, now with On My Way to Paradise, were you thinking all this stuff then, or is this you've got like over three decades now of becoming like the guru of, of creative writing. Well, was before, that what was going on in your head when you started? I, I think I've learned a lot since then, you know, I wrote an article uh, back then uh, called the, uh, let's see, what, what was it called? Um, I wrote an article on the uh, stress induction slash reduction uh, technique of storytelling and I gave a talk on that once, probably three or four years after I wrote the article, and uh, and Algis Budris read it and or, or heard me give the talk, and he says that's probably the best talk on writing that's been given in two and a half thousand years, and uh, and I'm <laughs> like, well, thank you, that was nice because uh, he was putting me in competition with Aristotle, but um, I've learned a lot since then because I've had thirty years to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, on your writing, because you you did a, a podcast earlier. This is probably about a year ago now, on um, the Owen Hubbard article called "Manuscript Factory," and that's uh-huh. when you, that's when Mr. Hubbard goes into just you know the business of writing, and he analyzed you know the all because he wrote in all the genres. He wrote mystery, he wrote western, he wrote science fiction, fantasy, uh, adventure. He wrote some romance. And he worked out his word rate and how much he made per story. And that's how he would analyze what to write because he enjoyed writing everything. But it was, he just broke it down. And then he got into, obviously, his, his um, creation was quite um, excellent because he, was, he, he could just like get into that world and just be there. Yeah. But he had a lot of bullpen as well to be able to assist with that. Um, and you talked about that was one of the most... Um, significant essays for you how much does that tie into because you've written science fiction you've written fantasy you've written how-to books the non-fiction books on on creative writing and how to write historical um, novels young historical adults, novels, all these thrillers, things you've written yeah. here how does that fit in for you on like do you write for obviously enjoy what you do but do you write for pleasure i really want to write a fantasy novel or do you write against based upon what the market will bear to be able to be the best for you? You know, um, I, I think I cheat uh, in that I write what I want, <laughs> I guess yeah. is about the easy way to put it. Um, I get bored doing the same thing over and over. And so I don't think that I was ever meant to sit down and say, write 20 fantasy novels in a row. You know, um, I might be able to write three in a row, but then I want to write something different and, you know, kind of break it up and take a vacation and then come back to it. Um but but for me, that article really was important because when when you're a writer and you're coming from academia, you know, very often you're 
you're going to be sloppy. You're probably not going to to hit your deadlines when it comes to uh, writing. You've been told that a real artist takes his time, mm-hmm. and and if it takes you a week to craft a sentence, you know it was a week well spent and all kinds of baloney like that. Um, and and the truth is that no, no, a writer's got to write and they've got to work. And and one of the things that I like to tell writers is that when you're writing, you know, you are an international business man. You are a company that produces manuscripts and you are producing them for the global market. I have friends who have made millions of dollars. I've got one friend who made millions of dollars in Romania. Okay. A little tiny market, but she hit number one on the bestseller list and stayed there for a long time. Um, and, and you can do things like that in this market. When you write a book, you have to be aware that it might be translated into 25 or 30 different languages. And, uh, and so you want to pay attention to the global audience and to your marketing opportunities for all of those audiences. And when I write a book nowadays, I look at it and I say, okay, I'm going to write this book. How am I going to turn it into an ebook? How am I going to turn it into an audio book? How am I going to get it printed uh, in the United States? And how am I going to, uh, who am I going to sell the rights to globally? Um, all of these kinds of questions. And then, you know, how are we going to turn this into video games and movies later on? You know, so we're, we're looking at really uh, how to liquidate the rights on a global market. And I, I think that none of my professors in college ever thought on that level. <laughs> you know, right. they were, they were totally lost. If, if you, if you were to sit in class on the first day and ask that question, so, Professor, how do I liquidate my global rights uh, for my first book here? Um, most of them would probably rightly uh, just, you know, gape at you and, <laughs> and not know how to answer. Yeah. I know how to answer that, but um, I think it may be the wrong question for a, a beginning writer to ask. Yeah, I think that's that's correct on that. So now you're talking about, you, you broaden out a little bit talking about, you know, the 25 languages and stuff. So what about how to um, best deal with your intellectual property? Because you've got, for, again, look at your own career. I've seen you. you know, you've got your books. You've got your translations. Uh, you've got the audio books. But you've also, you were talking about earlier on, spending stints in Hollywood. And you, I know you've done stuff with gaming. Mm-hmm. How does that tie in? Has, has this all been associated with your own books? Or how does how those connect up? No, I uh, I worked for a company years ago. I was I was writing the Rune Lords, and uh, and I wanted to uh, create a video game based on the Rune Lords world that I was doing. And so I went to uh, I read about a little video game company in town, and uh, so I went and visited them and said, "Hey, uh, I'm a writer. This is what I do." And I gave them a copy of the Rune Lords, and they asked me to to uh, go ahead and help work with them a little bit. And so um, they asked if I was any good at writing proposals, and I happen to be very good at writing proposals. So uh, I wrote a proposal uh, for a game called StarCraft Brood War, uh, which ended up kind of going huge and becoming one of the best-selling video games of all time. It's still used in the final rounds of the world championship of video game players in in, uh, Korea. And so uh, I started uh, designing video games there and then went into scripting and, and things like that. So I've worked a bit with video games. And then afterwards, I went into Hollywood um, just because I wanted to, to learn about writing in different mediums, um, not just in books and novels, you know, but, uh, you know, how are we going to do it in video games? How are we going to do it in film or in future as yet uncreated um, uh, mediums? Yeah, that's, um, it's interesting you bring that up because some people will notice that they're not able to get um, Writers of the Future eBooks prior to, I think, volume 20 because, an ebook didn't exist in, and so now we don't have the rights to the stories to make them as ebooks from earlier on. So they don't—they're not going to exist as ebooks. Hmm. J- just as an aside on that. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I hadn't thought about that. You you should have grabbed up those rights, you know, to produce them in any format yet to be invented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was something that, you know, it's just books are books, and that's what they are. And then audiobooks, that, okay, so we had rights for audiobooks, but you had print. You know, we were being clever, so we had, you could do hardback, paperback, trade paperback, and all, all all different formats of paperback, but we didn't have the ebook because that wasn't a conceived of thing yet. Yeah. When we get into, you know, brain machine interfaces and everybody's hooked up to the cloud and, and I send you a book in a, in a, uh, an ebook format, is it really an ebook anymore? It's just a data file, you know, ones and zeros. I don't even know how we're going to deal with that in the future. Well, hopefully we do because there's a lot of people's, uh, professions and livelihoods based upon copyright protection and being able to, uh, to monetize their, their properties. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So getting back now to creative writing and being and teaching creative writing and instructing uh, authors. So we've talked about what's good, but what should somebody watch out for? What should somebody kind of like raise the jaundice eye and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> well, I think, I think anytime that a teacher becomes too prescriptive and says, oh, you have to do it this way, you know, uh, there's a lot of different ways to, I like to say that there's 10,000 right ways to write any story. Uh, there's a million wrong ways, but there's only, you know, there's still 10,000 right ones. So you can sit down and say, I'm going to write a story and I'm a pantser. I'm just going to I'm just going to start writing and see where it goes. I've had, I've had books that have sold that way. Uh, I've had students, you know, uh, one of my one of my recent students um, uh, wrote a book that uh, you know she sat down and she had no idea where it was going. Uh, each week she would just go ahead and and write out a new chapter and uh, and you know she made the cover of Publishers Weekly three times last year, you know. So that was Elizabeth Chatsworth, who's also a recent winner. Of really, so she's a pantser. You you want to define that term so people listening to this will know yeah, what you're talking a pantser, about? A pantser is somebody who doesn't plot the novel in advance. They're just someone who sits down and starts a story and thinks, wouldn't it be cool if I had a character who was doing this and just see where the story goes and that can work really well for some people other so people writing from the seat of the pants yeah uh the the big problem is is that they tend to uh get to a place where they get boxed in and they don't know how to how to take the novel forward and so very often they'll give up and so there's a lot of pantsers who write themselves into dead ends and uh and then just kind of give up at writing but uh, you know, most most people who are New York Times bestsellers are plotters, and they sit down and think about what the overall plot would be. And and I've written books both ways, and I think generally speaking, I like to have a good idea of where the plot's going. I don't need to know every detail, but uh, but that's just one example of different ways to do things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've heard writing instructors. I remember one writing instructor years ago who said that all all storytelling is audio, that people people really hear the story in their heads. No, that that was him. Okay. There are some people who hear the stories in their heads. There's other people who see the stories in their imagination. And there's other people who uh, feel the stories emotionally. And and so you need to figure out how to combine various techniques. So whenever I get somebody who's too dictatorial about how to write, um, I, I tend to want to be a, a, a little bit aware, a little bit wary of them. And then, of course, uh, whenever I find a teacher who who doesn't write, who's never written, who doesn't understand uh, how to publish a story, you know, when when you get done with writing a book and you want to figure out how to sell it to a major publisher or how to self-publish the book. There's a lot of information that goes into that. And, and I, I run a large writing, um, a large writing group workshop group with, uh, with about 400 authors and, and we bring in bestsellers in, uh, in every genre and, uh, every way that you can possibly publish. And there's just a lot of ways 
to make a living in this business. But if somebody doesn't understand any way to make a living, uh, then then you've got problems. Right, right. So now in terms of uh, a writing instructor and fees, what's what's something to like, again, you should like watch out for as something as, as a bad indicator? Well, I've, I've seen writing instructors who, um, who will say, oh, I'm going to charge $8,000 for this class. And, and I think that that's, that's, that's a bit, that's a bit pricey, <laughs> you know, and I tend to like to create classes where you get a lot of participation, where you can ask questions, where you learn a lot, but you're not paying so much for them. I'm perfectly happy to give away information. In fact, you know, I, I've been for 14 years, I've been running a blog where you can get free writing tips, you know, from David Farland sent directly to your inbox. Um, straight to do, their pants. A kick, straight, kick from David Farland to their pants. That's called my David Farland kick in the pants originally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, somebody asked one day, what I really need is for you to come give me a kick in the pants every day. And I thought, well, that's just kind of outrageous. You shouldn't dare ask for that. And I thought, actually, I could. I could at least write a little article. Um, and so I started doing that. But the, the point here is that, you know, we, we give away some information, but if a person really gets serious, then they usually want to come and get some really concentrated information. And so I would give away writing tips, but then I'd also teach writing workshops and uh, and I like to try to get uh, something that makes enough money so that you can live on, while at the same time performing a good service for the uh, for the author. And that's a little bit hard to talk about because let's say that you're a person living in India or in uh, let's say you know uh, Jakarta or someplace. Gosh, your fees are probably going to be out of reach for most people. So you need to have at least something for everyone. But uh, but then there are people who say, "Gosh, Dave, I'll, I'd pay you to come to my house, you know, and you can just teach me writing. I'll give you, you know, a hundred thousand dollars." And I don't don't ever do that either. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be I don't want to be the person who's just teaching, you know, the world's most, uh, you know, the world, world's wealthiest wannabe writers. Um, so I, I try to find something that's reasonable. I, I don't have any workshop or any class that has ever been more than $1,000. And in fact, I feel guilty for having a class that's, that's, that's that expensive. But my, my new epic novel writing workshop, for example, where you're learning how to write a book like Dune or like Lord of the Rings, that one's a pretty big, expensive, and very intensive workshop. You know, uh, I looked at it and I just said, "Yeah, for the amount of work that I've got to put into it, you know, I'm going to have to charge something, um, something outrageous." Uh, most of my classes are are usually a lot less than that. Usually about half that price. Right. I get my three it. my three eighteen R class. Um, you know, I, I teach um, about 25 lessons in that class, so about 25 to uh, uh, probably 30 to 35 hours uh, of class time. Uh, that one runs about $580 now, but that gives you a really good overview of the entire business of writing, you know, not just how to write a book, how to plot it, uh, how to create a world. Uh, but also how to sell it, how to sell it in film, uh, how to you know uh, how to sell it as an ebook or whatever you want. I, I like to to try to take the information as wide as I can. I get it. Now, that seems different than master classes. It is the master classes don't give you a real overview of the the entire field the way that I do. Okay. Um, master classes are fun. Okay. They're a blast. But if you, if you took a master class on writing, you know, you may only get a couple of hours of information and, and the information is, um, kind of exciting and mind blowing and things like that. But you typically don't get an overview of how this entire field works and how you're going to make a living as a writer in it. And what I'm trying to do is to create writers who understand how to make a living in it. I get it. That makes sense on that. Yeah, with um, 
I mean, one thing that we do have is, and I'll say, I'll plug it again here too, because you're part of it is the Gale and Hubbard Writers of the Future online workshop, which has mm-hmm. been very successful. We've got like 5,000 students taking the course. We've had 600 people have downloaded the certificates, closer to 1,000 people that have said that they're done with it. But it's been a, um, a real successful program for us, getting out a lot of education on the subject of, of writing, creative writing, and these essays that you use in the workshop have been very successful. Then obviously listening to you, Tim Powers, and Orson Scott Card with your ex- various expertises on, I think, 13 different videos, which has just been just a really successful program for us. Yeah, I had I had a, a student who looked at it the other day and said, you know, gosh, um, there's more information packed in that than than you know, a uh, hundred a hundred workshops that I've been to, and uh, and she was just going on and on about how much she had learned from it, even though this is a person who's on the verge of becoming a professional author, you know, uh, she had. Uh, she just said, yeah, there's just a, a tremendous amount of information there. And I, I think that there is, you know. Yeah. Anytime that you are uh, trying to teach writing, there's so much that you can get. And, and, you know, like with my 318R class that I teach, Brandon Sanderson took it twice. Dan Wells took it twice. You know, they, uh, they'd take it the first time and then they'd say, okay, there's just, there's just too much coming in here. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose and, uh, I better go back and, and listen again. And, and that's basically what I want. I want people to, to feel like that. So when I teach my classes, one of the things I do is I record all the calls so you can go back and listen to them. Or if you miss one, uh, you can go back and listen to it in your free time. And uh, there's an, um, an astonishing number of people that are downloading these things and, and listening to them every day. Wow, that's, that's really good. Well, this has been great talking to you. So now, in terms of how people can, can find these different um, workshops that you're talking about here, where do they go to find them? Okay. Well, if you uh, if you want to learn about writing and you want to go to one of my workshops, you can go to www.mystorydoctor.com. And there you can sign up for my free newsletter and get free information. You'll also, I've got a free book that I give out where I took a hundred of my favorite writing tips, 400 page book and uh, said, okay, uh, just go ahead and have that. Um, and then what I've done is uh, uh, we also have my writing classes. Now, um, I mentioned some writing classes like the 318R. Uh, my fall is really filled up. When I, when I put a writing class up now, my last writing class pretty much filled up in about two hours, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I still let in twice as many people as I, I promised myself I would. So, um, so, you know, when I do open up a writing class, uh, they tend to fill up really quickly, but I've made it so that you can put your name down on a, on a, uh, email list so that I will tell you when the next one opens before I tell anybody else, uh, so that you can, so that you can get in. And, um, you know, I, that's, that's pretty much the way that I do it for my, for my big writing group, which, uh, what I do with my writing group, I have a number of classes that uh, uh, workshops that I've recorded. And so you get access to all of my recordings uh, for my workshops, which are pretty in-depth. Um, and when you join uh, the Apex Writers Group, you get access to those. But we also bring on guests and do uh, video calls with people like Orson Scott Card and Terry Brooks and and with uh, editors and uh, major movie producers and things is like that. Is that the one that I was on? Is that, is that the one yeah. I was a guest? Mm-hmm. And so I bring in experts from different fields of writing and editing and filmmaking and uh, so that you can learn from them. And then beyond that, we have one person. Uh, we have Forrest Wolverton, my son, who... Uh, who basically is uh, helps people get excited about writing and stay writing, stay motivated. So we've got a motivational expert on on our staff, and then we uh, take it even farther than that. There's all sorts of little subgroups that you can join. So if you want to write fantasy, you could you could join a group of other fantasy writers, and they get together and they do daily sprints. 
where they uh, they sit down at the computer at the same time and they just say, let's go write for six hours. And maybe they'll just sit there and write for six hours. And I've had people that are writing books like mad uh, by using this method. Um, other ones have uh, groups where you can sit down and uh, plot a novel, uh, figure out how to bang one out. Other Others have groups where you critique the writing that you've done and and this kind of thing. We have writer's rings where you have writers working in the same genre, trying to build for the same audience. We're getting ready to start a uh, writer's strategy group where you can figure out a strategy for how to get published, how to make a living, how to win awards, uh, those kinds of things. So my, my goal here is to basically say, move away from the you know, teaching writing workshops all the time and instead kind of adopt this holistic approach to, okay, let's, let's help you get everything that you can. And the price for that is $230 a year, which uh, ends up being a lot less than uh, the cost of taking a writing workshop or something like that. So you can get the same kind of information, the same quality, but, but spend a lot less money. That's great. And it's all at mystorydoctor.com. And that's at mystorydoctor.com. Apex Writers Group is at uh, www.apex-writers.com. Great. This has been great, Dave. I very much appreciate being able to chat with you on this. Okay. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, thank you very much, Dave. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.